Now, as we're beginning a new, new book of the Bible, it's only fitting that I give a brief introduction to the book as a whole so we can properly understand who James was and who he was writing to. This, of course, will help us understand the significance of the message that James wanted his readers to receive. Well, since this is the epistle of James, we'll start with the most basic question. Who was James? Who was James? That's right. Now, there are actually four men named James mentioned in the New Testament. Firstly, we have James the Great, who was one of the twelve apostles. This James was one of the sons of Zebedee, along with his brother and fellow apostle, John. Secondly, we have James the Less, who was also one of the twelve apostles. This James was the son of Alphaeus. And thirdly, we have James the father of Judas. This James is really only mentioned to distinguish his son Judas from the more infamous Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Imagine if you were to say something like, you know, I really admire Judas. Someone might reply with shock, how could you admire such an evil man? Then he would say, no, 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 not that Judas, not the one who betrayed Jesus. I mean the other Judas, you know, James' son. So that's three out of the four men named James. The fourth and last James was the brother of the Lord. Jesus naturally had other brothers and sisters, and this James was one of them. So the question is, which one of these four wrote the epistle of James? Well, according to most Bible scholars, James the Great, that is, James the son of Zebedee, he was martyred before the time when it was thought that James was written. So we can count him out right away. And what about James the Less? The son of Alphaeus. Well, again, according to most Bible scholars, this James, though he was an apostle, was too obscure a figure to have written the epistle before us. You see, because of the way that the author of the epistle begins his letter, it seems that the author knew that his name was well-known and authoritative. Look at verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. It's so short and simple. The author clearly thought that no further introduction was necessary. For example, we know that there are many people with the name Mia. So if I said to you that Mia just instituted a new policy, you wouldn't assume that I meant Mia Brathwit, or Mia Jones, or Mia Aline. And you're probably thinking to yourself, who are they? That's my point. Those Mias are too obscure to be widely known. Instead, you would immediately assume I was talking about Mia Motley. And you see, I don't even have to give any further details about that name. All of you here already know who that is. And so likewise, the James who authored the epistle before us was a James who was well-known and authoritative. And according to most Bible scholars, James the Less, that is James the son of Alphaeus, doesn't fit that bill. And we can actually say the same of the third James that I mentioned, the one who was the father of Judas. As I said before, his name is even only mentioned because uh, you want to disambiguate his son, Judas, from Judas the betrayer. And so that leaves us with James, the biological brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this James that is credited with the authorship of the epistle before us. Initially, he rejected his brother as Messiah, 
but later believed and was even visited by the resurrected Christ. And later he would become one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church. And he wrote the letter before us today. So that was just a brief introduction to who wrote James. So now the next question to ask is, who was James writing to? Well, as one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church, he was writing to Jewish believers who were scattered abroad from Jerusalem and even out of Israel itself as a result of persecution. Now I think this is all relevant because as we examine the first four verses of James, what we're going to see is that James writes about why believers ought to respond to trials with joy. And so the circumstances of these scattered Jews that he's writing to allow us to see just how trying these trials were. It's quite likely that these scattered and dispersed Jewish believers were those who fled Jerusalem as a result of the persecution of believers that immediately followed the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and 8. So let's turn there for a moment to Acts chapter 7 and go down to verse 51. Before we read, let me just set the scene for you. Stephen was proclaiming the truth of the gospel and doing signs and wonders among the people. And those who hated his message about Jesus basically instigated a mob to drag him before a council of Jewish leaders, including even the high priest himself. So picture Stephen standing before a large, irritated and angry crowd and speaking to them. And nearing the end of his speech, he says to them from verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Who you, receive, who, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And continuing into chapter 8, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So this is a major part of the context for the writing of the epistle of James. The church in Jerusalem had been ravaged, and the church, under fierce persecution, was scattered abroad. Men and women were forced to flee for their lives on account of their belief in Jesus as Messiah. And so, some years after the scattering, James continues to lead and encourage these believers still living under the threat of persecution. 
So let this knowledge set the tone for everything we talk about this morning. When James exhorts us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, I want you to understand that the trials that he's speaking of are at least violent persecution. The intensity of which could force a person to leave behind everything they own in order to save themselves from being killed. This is very important for us to understand because it's possible for us to think that James isn't really expecting that much of us. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, maybe we might think he just means something the lines, along the lines of maybe you're having a bad day at work and then you've got to go home and do all sorts of chores. You know, you're worried about money and you have a headache. Well, that's the kind of stuff we're supposed to respond joyfully to, right? James certainly can't expect us to respond with joy when people are literally trying to hunt us down and kill us, right? Well, yes. That's exactly what he's expecting. It may seem absurd that James would be telling his readers that they ought to be joyful under such serious circumstances. But when we understand his God-inspired reasoning, we'll be able to understand why trials, even life-threatening ones, should be met with joy. James, in explaining why his readers ought to respond to trials of joy, says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The divine logic being communicated through James is that Christians should be joyful while facing trials because the outcome of enduring trials is the complete and perfect Christian. That is to say that Christians are made perfect by enduring trials. And so that's our big idea this morning. Christians are made perfect by enduring trials. So with the introductory stuff out of the way, we can start by looking at what trials are. So we just touched on this in terms of the scope of trials that James meant for us to enjoy with joy. It's everything from having a bad day at work to people trying to kill you. But I want to focus more on what trials are in essence. Well, trials are tests. I'll say that again. Trials are tests. And there are two possible senses in which we can take what James is saying here. The first sense is that when believers are tested, their faith is also tested and shown to be either genuine or counterfeit. Now I could say more about that, but I won't because... I don't think that's the sense in which James is speaking. As stated in the introduction, he knows his audience and his audience knows him. He knows that they are genuine in their affections for Christ. Furthermore, he refers to them as brothers. So he isn't unsure about their profession of faith. So rather, the trials or tests that he is talking about carry more the sense of refinement. For example... The U.S. Navy has a process for commissioning new warships. After the ship has been built and fitted with all its various systems, they take it out for what is known as sea trials. This is where they test it. They see what works and what doesn't. They push the new vessel hard with all kinds of stressful maneuvers, trying to find its limits. They're tough with it, and they're rough with it to see if it meets the standard to which it was designed. They put it in all kinds of difficult situations and scenarios, trying to expose its weaknesses so that they can progressively fix what is lacking and refine the ship. 
bit by bit. That's what these trials or tests do. So James isn't telling these brethren about trials that will test whether or not they're real believers. But trials that will refine them into more mature, perfect, and complete believers. So when we as believers go through trials, the trials expose weaknesses in our faith. Areas in our lives where we possibly lack trust in God or have failed to obey Him. Areas where perhaps we lack scriptural knowledge and need to be taught. Trials can show a proud and boastful Christian that they are not all that they think that they are. Trials can show a Christian who thinks that they're cool, calm and collected just how angry and bitter they can get. Trials expose the remaining corruption that lives within us. Because of this, we are then more able to see where we need correction and where we need to repent and seek God's help to mature and grow. Another good analogy we can use for what trials are is that of the crucible. A crucible, for those who don't know, is a ceramic or metal container in which metals or other substances may be melted or subjected to very high temperatures. And indeed, believers facing trials are like precious metals being refined in a crucible. I want you to imagine. Imagine you go digging in the ground and you find a lump of a precious metal like gold. But mixed in with the precious gold, you have common non-precious metals like zinc. You can't take that impure lump and do much with it. So you take the whole mixed lump and you put it in the crucible and you start to turn up the heat. Eventually, the zinc will melt away and you can separate it off and the gold will remain. And then depending on how hot you can get the gold, you can mold it and shape it. So at the end of the process, where before you had an impure lump, now you've got pure gold shaped and fashioned to your liking. This is what trials are for the believer. A crucible in which to, re- to be refined and molded. When the heat of things like persecution or sickness or natural disasters are applied to us as believers, we are refined and shaped. The impurities attached to us are progressively burned away. Things like selfishness, pride, and anger, faithlessness, all these sinful impurities that cling to us, they are removed bit by bit. And the believer is able to be molded into what? Into the image and likeness of who? Of Christ. So this is what is in view when James talks about trials. They are difficult, painful, and at the very least, uncomfortable situations that believers are placed in, that God uses to refine us and make us progressively more pure. Now most, if not all of us, won't find it natural to respond to such refining with joy. After all, it hurts. And what's more, if we don't understand what's going on, we can even feel as if God is being cruel to us. We may feel that because God is bringing pain into our lives, it means that he does not love us. Well, believer, if you've ever felt this way, James' writing ought to comfort you. What James is saying to us here is that God is not being cruel to us and that he does in fact love us. And he shows his love to us by the very act of refining us. We are precious to him. 
precious enough for him not to leave us in the filth of our sin. But instead he works to clean us off and refine us into something pure and lovely. Something fit to be in his presence. We are precious enough for him to work to melt away all the dross. All the filthiness and ugliness that clings to us. Brothers and sisters, yes, trials, trials are hard and painful. But I want you to remember ultimately what trials are. They are the testing grounds that expose our weaknesses so that they can be fixed. And they are God's crucible in which he refines and perfects those who are precious to him. Or to use a term that's familiar to us, trials are God's means of sanctifying those whom he loves. So that's what trials are. Let's turn our attention now to what trials do. James says from verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The hard, difficult situations that God places us in produce steadfastness, or as the NASD puts it, endurance. When you think of that word steadfastness, or of the word endurance, what should come to mind is the idea of someone remaining under something for a long period of time. So picture a person carrying a heavy load over his head for a long time without dropping it. It is this quality of steadfastness, this quality of being able to remain under the weight of difficulty that is produced by the trials that God brings upon us. So this should make us ask a question. Why do we need to be able to remain under the weight of difficulty? Why do we need steadfastness? Well, put simply, the more steadfastness or endurance we have, the more trials we can withstand, and the more refinement we can undergo. I want you to imagine a soldier. Every day his commander puts him through difficult and challenging situations. Imagine it's the middle of the night and he's sleeping after a long hard day and all of a sudden the alarm sounds and he has to get up quickly and put on all his heavy gear and put his gun together and all this stuff and then run five miles in the rain and the mud. That's a trial. It would be for me. <laughs> he is being tested and deficiencies in his abilities are showing up and through this process he is being refined into a more capable soldier. But what happens if he breaks under the pressure and can't take any more? What happens if instead of the trials producing a super soldier, now you have no soldier? He quits and goes home. What good will he be to the defense of the nation? And that's why it's important for his commander to design the trials in such a way that they produce steadfastness or endurance in the soldier. So that they produce staying power. And why? So that the soldier can take more and more trials. More and more pressure. More and more difficulty without cracking and quitting. Ultimately, more and more refinement. And brothers and sisters, this is what God does for us through the trials that he sends our way. He produces in us staying power so that we can continue being refined. The trials he sends our way aren't meant to cause us to lose our faith or to quit our Christian walk, but to increase our faith and keep us running toward the goal that is the upward call of God 
in Jesus Christ. So believer, as you sit here this morning, I want you to think of that difficult situation that you're currently facing. Think of the suffering that you're going through right now. God wants you to know that it is producing strength in you. It is producing in you a special ability to bear with adversity. God means to bless you by refining you into the image of Christ and he is making sure that you have the necessary strength to continue that process. And you should be glad about that. The scripture says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Be joyful, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So rejoice about your difficulties because through them, God is doing good to you and making you better than you were before. But still, rather than rejoicing, we may want to grumble and complain. Like, what is the point of all of this? Yes, I know God wants to refine me, but why? Can't He just accept me how I am? Well, yes, it's true that God loved us even while we were sinners, but this is not to say that He disregarded our sin as if it wasn't important to Him. God is holy, and we must be holy as He is holy. God always planned to declare us just by the blood of Christ and then not to declare us just and then leave us as wicked sinners but to progressively make us more and more like his son. This ultimate goal is what makes steadfastness or endurance and strength so important. But again, you might say to me, why do I need to be made strong? If God didn't keep sending me all this hardship, then it wouldn't matter if I was weak or strong. If my life was easier, I wouldn't need all this strength. I wouldn't need all this steadfastness and endurance. Believer, be encouraged that the steadfastness being produced in you isn't an end in and of itself. It's not the main goal that God has planned. You aren't like a bodybuilder who trains just for the sake of training. You're not like a bodybuilder who puts on muscle just for the sake of putting on muscle. He never intends to go fight or you know, lift bricks or anything. He just wants to look buff. You're not like that. The ability to remain under, heavy, under the heavy load of things like persecution and sickness and natural disasters is meant to make you more like Jesus. Look at verse 4. James goes on to say, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God has a full effect in store for you. There is an end result that comes about from you being refined and the steadfastness that enables it. This end result, friends, is completion. It's perfection. And ultimately, here's the point, these are both words that we use to describe our Lord Jesus. He is the complete man. He's the perfect man. He possesses all the righteousness that a man should have. He's lacking in nothing. There is no way in which Jesus Christ is deficient. No way in which he falls short. And so when James says that we ought to rejoice when trials of various kinds come, so that endurance can be produced in us, and for that endurance to have its full effect, the full effect is for you, believer, to be refined into a copy of your elder brother Jesus. To become perfect like him. To become complete like him. What a glorious end this is to look forward to. This is why James can tell us to rejoice. We are being sanctified through hardship to be more and more like Jesus. And this means for us less languishing in our sin and more flourishing 
in righteousness. This means a deeper relationship with God as we draw closer to Him and He draws close to us. We will be sanctified into more joyful, faithful, loving men and women. And what greater joy is there for we who love righteousness and holiness to become more and more like He who is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. So praise God for His wisdom when you're going through trials. I want you to notice what James says in verse 4. It tells us something about the importance of responding to trials with joy. It says that we have to let steadfastness have its full effect. We just saw that the full effect of steadfastness is the full and perfect refinement of the believer into the image of Christ. So we face trials and those trials show us where we're weak and we get stronger because of it. And the strength is used to give us the ability to face even more trials so that we can attain more refinement and it continues on like that. Well, James is saying here that we have to allow the refining process to go on. If trials come and we lose hope in God and we respond sinfully to them and we don't trust God and we set ourselves to be bitter and angry and we turn away from the instruction of scripture uh, as to how we ought to act in a given situation, then we will not see the refinement that we should. I want to give an example from marriage. Marriage is one of the most difficult relationships a person can have. You make solemn vows to so closely and intimately intertwine your life with someone else's that your lives become one. And you live with that person day in and day out, seeing all of their flaws and shortcomings. Well, it's no surprise then that marriage is one of the most abundant sources of trials for the believer. God uses marriage and the difficult situations it brings to refine the believing husband and wife into more mature believers. But sadly, too many couples, when facing these trials, rather than responding to them with joy because of the refinement that they bring, they respond with anger, and selfishness, and pride. Or perhaps they just don't trust that God can help them through the difficulty that they are going through and they just give up altogether. They divorce. So instead of humbling themselves and doing what scripture commands and loving each other and bearing with each other, they split apart, they're done. They choose instead to remove themselves from the crucible of marriage and so they miss out on the refinement, growth and strength that it is meant to bring. And oftentimes they make their lives much harder than they were before. They didn't respond to trials in their marriage with joy and would not let steadfastness have its full effect. Brothers and sisters, James means for us to understand that Christians have a responsibility to see their trials as good and then act in a way that shows gratitude to God. When someone does something good for you, don't you respond with joy? You should. So don't grumble and complain about your difficult circumstances. Meet each one with the instruction that God provides in Scripture and rejoice. Because soon enough, you will see how God has made you stronger, more holy, closer to completion, closer to perfection, and closer to looking like our Lord Jesus. Now I want to make sure that we have a realistic and accurate expectation about this process of refinement through trials 
and the effect of us being made perfect and complete. I don't want you to go away from here thinking that you can be made perfect and complete in this life. Focus on those words, in this life. Because you will not be perfectly like Jesus in this life. Not while you are alive on this earth in your present state. Now I know I've just spent all this time talking about how great and glorious the end result of all this refinement and all these trials. And now I'm saying that the end result is unattainable in this life. Well, let me explain. Let me ask you. Before you believed in Jesus, what were you like? Well, the Bible tells you what you were like. Paul says in Ephesians, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that was the description of you before you believed. Well, what happened after you believed? The prophet Ezekiel wrote about that. He wrote about what, would, what God would do, saying, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So you see, there has been a change in you if you believe in Jesus. The old spirit and old heart that you had, which hated uh, righteousness and loved sin, has been replaced by a heart and spirit that loves righteousness and hates sin. There's an inversion. But here is what I want you to understand. This transformation is not yet complete. It has not yet been made perfect. This is because currently you are still attached to your corrupt flesh. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. You see, there is a war going on inside of you between your old flesh and your new spirit. And in this war, unfortunately, there will be casualties. You will sin. This is why no believer can claim to be perfect in this life. And if anyone does claim to be perfect and sinless, John says in 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So despite the fact that we have been given a new spirit, we are still waiting for the day when our corrupt bodies will be transformed into incorruptible and perfect bodies. And this will happen at the resurrection of the dead that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. So because of all this, you might ask, what's the point of me enduring all these trials and going through all this difficulty and gaining all this strength if the goal of perfection and completion can never be attained all the days of my life? It may seem like a futile errand. Well, let me give you another analogy. Imagine you survived a plane crash. The plane went down in a thick, dense jungle surrounded by tall mountains on either side. Now you knew for a fact that rescue was coming. You didn't doubt that. It'd only be a matter of time before someone came to save you. You just didn't know when that would be. It could be hours, it could be years. Now imagine this also. In this valley that you're in, in this jungle, 
There are dangerous creatures of all sorts. They're parasites, jaguars, bears, you name it. Snakes, centipedes, grasshoppers. Lots of things. Lots of things are trying to kill you. Now there's one more vital piece of information that you have. If you start climbing the mountain, the dangerous creatures become fewer and fewer. You're still going to face things like mountain lions and such, but they're sparse, right? You'll have fewer dangerous creatures to contend with. You'll be safer climbing up the mountain than staying deep in the jungle. Now with all of that in mind, let me ask you a question. Does knowing that there will still be dangerous creatures further up the mountain make you feel like climbing it is pointless? Would knowing that perfect safety is unattainable make more safety less attractive? Well, I don't know about you, but I would take the odd bear every now and then over constant swarms of mosquitoes and anacondas and packs of jaguars and parasites and all that stuff. And <laughs> what about rescue? Does knowing that you'll be rescued eventually make staying deep in that jungle any more of an appealing thought? It doesn't. You would want to get out of there as soon as possible. So hopefully by now you see my point. Just because we will never be made perfect in this life doesn't mean we shouldn't want to strive for it. Just because we will never in this life be completely free of things like anger or selfishness doesn't mean we shouldn't want less anger and selfishness in our lives. After all, if we really do have a new heart and a new spirit, we should want nothing more to be as free from this sin as we possibly can get. And this isn't just a matter of preference. Scripture actually demands this of us. 1 John 3.9 says that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In other words, believers don't make a habit of sinning. They're not defined by sin. If you look at a believer, you should see a decreased pattern of sin in their life. As the believer follows an upward trajectory away from the sin that wants to define them, there will be less and less of it in their life. Just like the survivor in our analogy, as they climb the mountain, they see fewer and fewer dangerous creatures, and their lives are made better for it. And God is glorified when we seek to sin less. We will not be sinless, but we should all seek to sin less. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the full effect that comes about from our endurance of trials. We seek to glorify God with our lives as we sin less and less, and we seek to please our Heavenly Father. And so this is why we fight to remain steadfast on the trial. We want to be sanctified. We want to be, to be continually climbing towards perfection, becoming more and more like Jesus as we climb. This is why we joyfully bear with suffering and hardship. Because we know that Christians are made perfect by enduring trials. And this is to the glory of God. So, brethren, as you face this coming week, I want you to meditate on what you've heard this morning. 
in the moments when you sigh, in the moments when you grumble and stoops, remember what God is doing for you. He's doing good for you. So rouse yourself to rejoice and meet the trial with joy and faith in Jesus your Savior.